hear these words from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, as God calls us to worship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Beloved, every time we gather for worship, we need to be reminded that we are defined by the creator and maker of heaven and earth. I'd love to look with you this morning in Leviticus chapter 16. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn there. Um, If you have trouble finding it, it's the third book of the Bible. So start on the left and Genesis, Exodus, and you'll get to Leviticus. Um, We are looking together this year at the story of scripture together. So we're spending all 52 weeks of this year going through the story of the Bible. I gave you a framework last week. It's the same one this week. The, if you want to know what we're doing for this whole year, uh, remember these numbers, three, four, five, three, four, five. So this is the framework for the whole year. Three stands for three loves. We started off the year with John Paul preaching to us from Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about how God has designed us to love him, love others, and love place. That has always been God's mission for his people to love him, love others, and love the place where he has put us. Three loves. Four is the four-part story. So when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's four parts make up the story. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. That's the four-part story of the Bible. Most of us have grown up in situations in which the Bible is presented as a two-part story, rebellion and redemption. And there's a whole lot more of what's going on in the Bible than just two parts. There's four. Five threads. Five threads. These threads are all taken from Genesis 3, and they continue on all the way to Revelation 22. I mentioned to you when we looked at Genesis 3 together that unless you divide the Bible where the Bible divides the Bible, you'll have some type of weird framework through which to understand the Bible. So the Bible is really creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and then Genesis 3 through Revelation 22 work out the whole story. So here are the five threads that we find beginning in Genesis 3. Number one, God always has a people. He is always building his church, always, way back in Genesis 3. Number two, evil is real, but it doesn't get the last word. Evil's real, but it doesn't get the last word. It doesn't get the last word in when the rebellion that's recorded in, Gen- in Genesis 3. It doesn't get the last word in Revelation 22. Evil is real, but it doesn't get the last word. Three, grace. Grace. Grace means that God initiates, God pursues, and God saves. We see that all the way in the beginning, all the way to the end of Scripture. Grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would, and when he came to earth, he actually accomplished something. He did it so that victory is certain. It's already there. It's reality. 
And we're living in this already, not yet, tension. But he did it. He accomplished something. And five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything is moving toward Jesus. That's true in the Bible. That's true for us. That's true of history. Everything is moving toward Jesus. Sound familiar? Three, four, five? Sound okay? I mean, I guess I shouldn't invite that because you might say no. So if you want to say no and you want to talk about it, I'm happy to do that too. But that's the framework by which we're thinking through the Bible this year, 3, 4, 5. So I'm going to read Leviticus 16, verses 15 through 22, and then verses 32 through 34. This is God's word. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray and ask him to help us. And then we're going to work our way through this passage and hopefully end up seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of God. So listen to this, Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 15. Here's what God says to you and to me. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now 32 through 34. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, I realize we jumped in right where a goat was getting killed. So let's pray and ask God to help us and then let's dive in together. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your word. It's true. It's relevant for our lives, even if we don't quite understand why yet. Holy Spirit, would you act on us and help us to understand this passage? Make This word is alive, but sometimes we're kind of slow and we're not alive. So we pray that you would illumine our minds and make us alive to what is here. Cause your word to be so real and true as we see Jesus. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do this in us, that we might see you, Christ, and we might know you better, and therefore know ourselves better, and therefore, by grace, 
live for you this week. We pray all this because we want you to get the glory. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Don't all of you want a little bit more finality in your life? I mean, really. If you think about your lives for a moment, aren't there so many things that you wish were just finalized, complete, resolved? You know, when you think about your life, if you think about it like, like I think about mine, there's so many loose ends to life, you know? There's so many things that aren't complete. There are relationships that are unresolved. There's so many things that aren't, I don't know, there's just not any finality there. And it seems like there should be finality. We all want finality. I mean, when I think about my computer, I have a computer and the operating system that I have is new, whatever you want to say, but there's always upgrades, right? There's always updates. And that can be so frustrating because then just how I, just when I figured out how to use one thing, something is uh, upgraded and updated and now I got to figure out how to use it a different way or it can do something new. We all want finality in all kinds of ways. It's something that we lack and it's something that we want. We want to live with more finality, more resolve, more completeness in our lives. And I want to show you in this passage that this passage is about finality. It's about finality. And I want to show you the finality which can bring this into our lives. This can bring you new life. And for some of you here today that don't realize that you need a new life, this can bring you new life. And it can also bring renewal. So if you're here tired and weary, maybe everything that you do is actually motivated by fear when you're honest, this right here in Leviticus 16 can bring you the type of finality that can renew you every day. This passage talks about a finality that can bring peace into our lives, joy into our lives. It's the type of finality that can overcome our greatest failures. You know those things that you've never really gotten over? The things that you think you've done that are so great that you don't know how you can ever make up for them? This finality can overcome all of our failures. This finality can also help us, it can also help us realize that life is a journey and not getting the algorithm right. Do you realize how much of our lives with God we think is really about an algorithm? If I just do the right thing here, plug this in there, I'll get the result I want down here. This finality can help us break free of thinking that life with God is get the algorithm right. And it can help us understand that life is actually a journey. And I already said that this is the kind of finale that can bring us peace and joy. It actually can do this as well. It can help us locate our anger and frustration in the right place. Because God's okay if we get angry about things. He's okay if we're upset about things. But our anger and our frustration have to be located in the right place. And this chapter is talking about a finality that can help us do that. And I'm, I know I'm giving a lot to you here, but these are all things that are relevant in my life. It can give me the finality that means that I can live my life from the place of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness toward others. And I need that. Maybe you do too. 
So this passage is about finality. So here's what we're going to look at. What's going on? That's going to be our first point. And secondly, so what? What's going on and so what? As we work through this idea of finality, a glorious finality that we all need. So what's going on? Well, let's get our bearings together, okay? We're looking together at the scripture this whole year. So let's get our bearings as we dive into Leviticus 16. After God brought his people out of Egypt, God made dramatic changes for the better in his people. God was growing his people's understanding and deepening their understanding of his presence with them. Coming out of Egypt, we looked at last week, God gave his people the Ten Commandments. Following that, God said, I want you to build this place. We'll call it a tabernacle. It's like a big old tent. And I want you to build this tabernacle. He lays out the instructions for that in Exodus, at the end of Exodus. And he says, I want you to have this in your life. Because I want you to understand in deeper ways and in clearer ways, I want you to grow in your understanding of my presence with you. And this tabernacle is a symbol and represents my presence with you. If you go back and read through the Old Testament, what you'll find out is that the tabernacle was actually at the center of his people's lives and existence. It meant that they weren't supposed to do anything, go anywhere, without realizing that God is the center of their existence. And his presence is central to their lives. Which means his presence is central to my life and and your life. And God wanted them to understand more and more about what it meant that he was with them. Now, that creates this tension. Okay, God is expanding my understanding of being with us. He's deepening my understanding of his presence with with me, with us. It creates the tension of, but God is holy. God is holy and good, and he is 100% loving. He is holy. How in the world can a holy God who's loving and righteous and good and all those things, how in the world can that being dwell with me? How could a holy God dwell in the middle of people like us? How can he be in my life? If he's holy, I'm not, right? I think everyone here would admit in one way or another, maybe it's the short end of, I just know I'm not perfect. Great, wonderful, welcome. God is. So how in the world can he dwell with you? How in the world can he dwell with people like me? That is a tension. And it's into that that God says this is how. Atonement. This whole chapter is about atonement. If you read it all, if you read all six, uh, chapter 16, all the verses, all 34 verses, atonement is used more than 16 times in this chapter. It's all about atonement. How can a holy God dwell with people like you and me that aren't holy or sinful? Atonement. And here's what God does. If you go back and read, the first 10 verses are an overview of what goes on this entire chapter. Verses 11 through 28 are more details about the, what's laid out in the first 10 verses. 
So that God's saying, here's what atonement means and here's what you're supposed to think of, how you're supposed to think about it. And then I want to give you more detail so it gets deeper into you. And verse 29 through 32, we're just laying out over and over, this is atonement, this is atonement, this is atonement, this is atonement, this is atonement. So we should get in our minds, oh, God is talking to us about atonement. So here are the steps. Here's what happens in broad categories. This is what happens. You see, as God gave his people the tabernacle in which they were supposed to understand his presence and being in the center of their lives, God also appointed people like priests. And we have an example of that in Leviticus 16 with this guy named Aaron. And you see, God has always wanted the priest, God has always wanted the pastor to be someone who is living out the gospel, who is communicating God's word, teaching God's word, living out God's word. God has appointed people to function in that role so that he can care, God can care for the souls of mankind. So we can care for the souls of his people. And on the Day of Atonement, this is what the priest, the pastor, had to do. First of all, he had to wash. And he had to leave off the garments that he came to the tabernacle with. He had to leave them to the side. And he had to, he had to rinse himself. And he had to put on holy garments of linen. An undershirt, an overshirt, a sash, a turban. He had to clothe himself with holy linen garments. And then what he needed to do is he needed to take an animal and he had to offer a sacrifice. He had to kill the bull and he had to offer that in order for him to be cleansed, not only himself, but also his entire family. And once he did that, then he was able to take another bull and to go into the holy place. And what he did is he not only took the blood from the animal that he killed for himself and his family, but he also took the blood from another bull as a representation of the rest of God's people, and he put that blood on the mercy seat. He sprinkled it. He spread it around because the mercy seat was the place in which God centered himself, especially centered himself on the mercy seat. So Aaron offered the sacrifice for himself and his family. Then he offered a sacrifice for God's people. Then after that, he came out of the holy place so that the congregation could see him. And what he did is that there was still a goat that was alive. And he actually came out and he put his hands on the goat. And then if you notice in one of the verses, I don't remember which one right now, but there was a guy who was standing at the ready. So as he would come out and put his hands on the goat and therefore transition the sins of all the people onto that goat. There was a guy standing at the ready, and what that guy would do is that he would chase the goat out of the tabernacle place, out of the courtyard, out of where they were, out the camp, and then just continuing off into the distance. That was his job. Doesn't that sound like kind of a fun job? We get to scare this goat to death. I get to whip it a little bit, scared, get it out of here. And just everybody's cheering and excited about this because it's, it's somewhat of a culmination. And following that, Aaron then had to re-rinse himself. This time you understand why, because he got kind of bloody offering these sacrifices, right? He had to rinse himself and then put on the garments that he originally came with. And then doesn't say this in the text, but this is what happens. Then he would pronounce the benediction on God's people 
and give them, his bless, give them God's blessing. And then the whole thing was over. That's what Aaron had to do. And God said, this is the picture of atonement. This had to be done once a year because there were all these other things that were building up to it that we hadn't talked about. And this is where all the sins of the people are atoned for. Now, that's what's going on in this passage. I hope that helps you to understand it a little bit more. Would love for you to go back and read it. And when you do, make sure you read it this way. The first 10 verses give you the overall framework. 11 through 28 dives into that with more detail. So you realize these things are layered and they're fitting together. All right, so let's get to the so what. Because I can imagine if you're sitting there and you've never read Leviticus before, never heard about it before, you might be thinking, great, Dave, this sounds really bloody. Glad we didn't get into that too much. But I don't see any relevance at all for my life. I mean, if I make this personally, my job description isn't changing to where I'm going to have to start killing animals. That's not what it means for me. So what in the world does this passage mean? What is it saying? What is it doing? Well, let's think about the so what. Here's a sidebar to begin. A quick sidebar, which is absolutely important and paramount to understanding the Old Testament. Although it is helpful when you read the Old Testament to distinguish between ceremonial laws, sacrificial laws, like what we just talked about here, and make the distinction between the sacrificial laws and what we might call the Ten Commandments and moral laws, I want you to understand that even though it's helpful to understand those distinctions, you've got to get this deep into you. These laws worked together. So in the Old Testament, all these ceremonial laws that we read about, and this one in particular about the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that had to be made, they always pointed people back to the moral law. So that the sacrificing that happened not only was significant, but it pointed people back to obedience. And when people thought about the Ten Commandments, the moral law, what they were to think to themselves is, oh, yes, I can't do all of this. I need a sacrifice. So that, take this in, before the coming of Jesus, God's people had the following rhythm of their lives, repenting and believing and believing and obeying. Do you see the point? They could never perfectly keep the Ten Commandments. And we'll talk more about the ceremonial laws in a moment. They couldn't ever do it. They, it's not as though they just had to be obedient enough to earn God's favor. These laws fit together, and therefore it gave them the rhythm of their lives of sacrifice, repenting, and believing, and Ten Commandments, moral law, obeying, following, giving my life to God. Make sense? Most of us have thought to ourselves, you know, I think that the Old Testament folks had a different way of getting to God than I do, and they don't. They had the same way of understanding God, of understanding the message of the gospel. It's the same. So that's my sidebar. Yes, it's helpful to distinguish them, but we must think of them as functioning together. Because God knew we could never keep the commandments. That's why we have the sacrifices. And God knew that we need the sacrifices because that leads us to obedience and following him and loving him. So... Here's the so what. With that sidebar said, here's the so what. What's going on here 
is the gospel is being acted out. The good news of Jesus is being acted out for you and me to take in. One of my favorite theologians said something along these lines. The Old Testament is the stage on which all the New Testament doctrines are played out. Therefore, whatever doctrine, whatever teaching you find in the New Testament, you will find it illustrated for you in the Old. This is the gospel acted out in front of God's people for you and me to take it in because we live on this side of the cross and therefore it should be easier for us to see it in Leviticus 16. So here it is. The gospel is acted out. You see, there's a great assumption that's going on with Leviticus 16. Here's the assumption. That there's a problem between us and God. That there's a problem between God and us. Now, I realize you might be here this morning, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I don't know about God. I don't know about church. I don't know about Bible stuff. I don't know about worship. I got a lot of questions for God. And guess what? Absolutely legit. I'd love to talk with you about those. So would John Paul. So would the elders. Hit us up. Email us. Text us. You got questions about God, trying to understand things? Let's talk. Put me to work. That's what I love to do. But also, I want to say this. If you have a lot of questions for God, just let me gently say this to you and hopefully receive it in the same way that you would have a question for God. God might have questions for you. And that's not nullifying your questions at all. I'm saying they're legit. I just want to open up your mind a little bit more so that you might realize God might have some questions for you. The creator of the universe might have some questions about what's going on in your life. The assumption of this passage is that there's a problem between God and us. That's why atonement needs to be made. And not only is there an assumption of sin, but because of that, a sacrifice needs to be made. That's why the bull has slain. That's why the goat is slain. That's why there's one being set free. The assumption is that there's a problem, and because of that, there needs to be a sacrifice. And I want you to understand that the priest, Aaron, the pastor, needs the sacrifice just as much as the entire congregation this might sound self-serving for a moment, but we live in a part of the world in which people tend to elevate their pastors. And I want to tell you something. I am no more holy than you are. I have the exact same struggles that you do. Aaron was not superior to anyone in God's people. He was not superior to a single person in the congregation. He needed exactly what he was trying to give others. Aaron had to cleanse himself first. He didn't get to be a pastor because he was so holy that he didn't need a sacrifice. He needed something to die in his place too, to render him clean so that he could then do his job of presenting the people's sins to God so that God would forgive them too. Adam, excuse me, Aaron needed the sacrifice. The congregation needed the sacrifice. 
And that sacrifice was a representative. That bull, that goat was representing the sins of God's people, pastor and others, elders and others, so that God would be a God of mercy and grace because there was a substitute standing in our place. Well, that's the assumption, and because of that, a sacrifice had to be made. And you know what the result of that was? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. You might say, well, where in the world do you see that in the text? Well, let me tell you. Remember, the Gospels acted out. Remember that? When Aaron came out from behind the veil so the congregation could see him again, and when Aaron went over to the goat and he put his hands on the goat, and then that guy that was standing at the ready... After Aaron symbolically laid his hands on the goat, transferring the sins of the people onto that goat because they didn't see what happened behind the veil. And after he did that, the guy chased the goat out of the camp and never to be seen again. He is picturing and acting out for you forgiveness. So that all of God's people could look at that goat that had their sin, knowing that the bull had been sacrificed so that they could watch that goat run out from the middle of them into the distance, never be seen again, never thought of again. That is how powerful God's forgiveness is. That you can literally take him when he says he's forgiven you and realize that he has removed your sins. This is why John Paul talks about this over and over, uses these verses as the assurance of pardon. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. You understand why, he's, why that language is used, right? Because the goat goes off into the distance as far as you can see. As far as east is from west, so far has God removed our sins from us. And before Christ, God's people got to see that too. They got to witness that God was actually forgiving them. And that goat was gone. Never to return. Just like their sin. Now at this point, I need to tell you, that as glorious as this is, that the gospel is being acted out for us. I want you to hear me say this about the sacrifices that were being made. They were insufficient. Now hear me. Hear me. They're insufficient. That means that this is why the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. The animals themselves could not take away sin. God's people were not forgiven because they followed the laws themselves. The blood of bulls and goats was picturing and pointing to and in shadow form and typifying the coming of Jesus. That means that the coming of Christ didn't mean that he was replacing everything in the Old Testament. It meant that he was fulfilling it. He was fulfilling the entire Old Testament, not replacing anything. It meant that the sacrifices didn't need to be made anymore because he fulfilled them all and was the final sacrifice. It meant that the land that God had promised to his people was foreshadowing the coming of Christ who owns and who inherits the entire earth. It meant the priesthood that functioned in the Old Testament and the kings that functioned in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't replace them. He was the embodiment of everything they were supposed to be. 
He was the priest. He was the king. He was the sacrifice. He was everything that the Old Testament is picturing. And that means that oftentimes we've got to reprogram our minds because we think, oh, well, it's one way in the Old Testament, now it's a different way in the New. No. Jesus was the fulfillment of it all. This is why baptism doesn't replace circumcision. It's the fulfillment of it in Jesus. It's why the Passover is not replaced. It's fulfilled at the table in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it all. Now, that leads to this. Do you know the source of this entire Day of Atonement? The source, we looked at the assumption, then we looked at because of that, we needed a, a, a sacrifice, a representative. As a result of that, it means that we're, we have forgiveness. And that means that the sacrificial system itself was pointing us to Jesus. But I want you to see the whole source of this. Do you know what the source of this whole chapter is? The whole day of atonement, the whole idea of atonement? The source of this is the love of God. Now, here's where I'm also asking you to do some hard work. Because most of us have been taught that God in the Old Testament, angry, bad. God in New Testament, loving, good. And as someone that cares about you, I want you to work real hard to rid yourself of that. I want you to stop thinking that the God of the Old Testament is bad and New Testament God, good. I want you to see that God is the one that set this up. The sacrifices represented Jesus. All the laws represent God's loving provision. God loves his people. The God of the Old Testament is the God of grace and the God of love. He set all this up because he's initiating and he's pursuing and he's saving. And when you think about the reality, because all of us assume this, we know this, and this is good. Trust me, this is good. You know that the cross cost Jesus something, right? You know that it cost him something. You know that it was hard. But have you ever come to grips with the reality that it cost the Father something too? That when the Bible says he didn't spare his own son, it cost him something? It says when he gave his son, it cost him something? I don't know of any clearer way to illustrate this for you than something in my own life. In the first Sunday of February is my seventh year here, and I've never told you this because I haven't been able to, and I'm going to try. I lost it at 8.30 service, and so I'm going to try to hold it together a little bit, even though I know it's fine for me to be emotional with you all. You all have seen me get emotional many times. But I want you to understand the love of the Father. This is the best illustration of the gospel that I have, and it's in my own life. In the year 2006, there were some bad forest fires in the state of Florida. And I think they started in April, and anyway, they eventually got under control. But there were fires uh, in Florida, and it led to a young man who was 17 years old. being significantly burnt. He was on life support 
for many days, maybe even weeks, I don't really remember. And he was going to die. And there was someone else. There was someone else at the time living in New York. And that was my dad. And he was about to die. He was literally about to die. And because this young man, 17 years old in Florida, was going to die, and about to die, his father made the decision to give up the life of his son so that my dad could have his heart. This father chose to pull the plug, whatever you want to say, he chose to give up his son so that my dad would have that 17-year-old heart. Beloved, it cost the father to give up his son. He didn't spare his own son for you and for me. And when you understand that, you'll begin to understand that, fi- that the finality that we all need is found in the atonement of what Jesus has done. And that means the confidence that you need, you will only find it in and through Jesus. It means that if you're arrogant and self-serving and in Everything about your life is about you. The only thing that will humble you is the fact that a holy God didn't spare his son. So that he would die, his son would die for you. And if you need new life, you'll never find it in any other way other than Jesus giving his life for you. And if you need more peace in your life and you need more joy in your life and you need to, be, need to be more of a merciful person and you want to locate your anger in the proper place, you'll only be able to do that. I will only be able to do that as we understand what Christ has done for us. And if you understand the atonement that Christ has made for you and for me, it means that we'll stop thinking about our lives as getting the algorithm right. And we'll start realizing that it's a journey. And it means that God will bring a whole lot more love in and through us to other people. Beloved, Leviticus 16 is giving you the gospel. It's showing it to you so that you might understand the love of God in providing his own son. So that we would have life and forgiveness. And my friends, that's exactly what brings us to the table. Don't leave here without knowing that what Jesus has done means something for your life this week. It means something for you as you go into work tomorrow, as you leave this and eat lunch, as you interact with your children, as you recreate this week. Whatever you do, whatever you do, you can do it because of what Christ has done for you. So hear this blessing, realize it's ancient. And God's determined to do something in your life because of Jesus. 
The Lord your God is going to bless you, and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you, and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come, forever and ever, even now, his presence is with you. And one day, he will bring shalom. He will give you peace. All because of Christ. Amen. Go in his peace.